0: Let us start out in prayer. Father in heaven, we just come before you this morning, and we just praise your name, and we thank you for your love towards us, your kindness towards us, the grace that you have poured into our lives, Lord, um, that you never leave us alone. We thank you for that tender love and care, Lord. I pray that you be with me now, Lord, and uh, attend uh, my preaching, Lord, that your word would be in my mouth, that I would not speak anything uh, that you would not have me to say, Lord, and that it would all be for the glory of your name. Everything that is culminating in this history of, of the story that you are building, Lord, is all to that aim of your glory and the good of your church, your people. So, Father, uh, please be with me in your name. Amen. So, when we put the preaching schedule together, through Philippians, I was never counting on getting this text here. (laughs) I usually like to get the text that you can, there's a lot of material that you can work through and pull out uh, amazing, wonderful treasures that the Lord has hidden in His Word. And here we come to this text this morning, and I will read it for us and, um, and then begin to explain it. So Philippians chapter 4 verse 21. 23. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. I was looking, uh, as I was studying this passage this week and meditating on it and going through it, I always like to study the text and, and. bring up my own thoughts before I go to commentaries and and look at something else. And and I was just looking at it, looking at it. And and all I'm seeing is say hello to the saints. We say hello. Grace to you. It just wasn't pulling anything out of it. So I go to the commentaries and I I got four commentaries on Philippians and I go to my favorite one and I go to this section. They have nothing on it. Go to my second one. They have nothing on it. Go to my third one. He's got something on it, but just not helpful. And then the fourth one, completely not helpful. So I thought, okay, let's just start working through it. Look at the words. What do these mean? And then see what the Lord will show us through it. And so this morning I titled it Christian Fellowship in your brochure. But uh, at the end of this week, I added, it's Christian Fellowship through Paul's Pursuit of Our Joy. So, and I hope to be able to show that to you in this preaching. So verse 21 he says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. So what is a greeting? What do we mean when we say greet, I greet you? Well, it's the verb in this passage. It's said three times. This is the action here. This is, the, it's greetings. And what the greeting means is, is, is that. It means to say, hi, hello, as we would say, hi or hello. And, but here in the Greek, it has a, there's a meaning here that it, it carries with it a note of affection and a desire for one's well-being. So this just isn't a flippant, "say hi, hello, how you doing over there?" This is Paul reaching out and saying, "I see you. I recognize you, and you're special to me. And I and my desire for you is your spiritual well-being." So he greets them, and notice as he's saying this, he says, every saint in the passage. He says, greet every saint. So he doesn't just say, greet the saints, or greet everybody over there in Philippi. He is saying, every saint. So as this letter gets delivered, he is saying to those, uh, the guy that he's delivering the letter to, it's going to go to the elders, He wants the elders to read it, and he wants the elders, and he wants the deacons to go to the congregation. And Paul's saying, I want you to go and tell everyone in Philippi. Every single one in Philippi are special to me. Every single person, no matter their their rank, their education, their beauty, their intellect, doesn't matter to me. I want them to know I see them, and I recognize them, and they matter to me. You, You greet every individual saint. We are one body, but we are many parts. We are individuals together in this body of Christ, but still recognized as the individual. And I think Paul highlights that here in Philippians chapter 2. When he says, "So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit and affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves." This isn't uh, a, this isn't a collectivism that uh, does away with the individual. This this is a body. Of individual believers that are caring and loving on each other, fellowshipping their partners in, partnership in this gospel is as one body, but it 's individuals together and they 're individually looking after each other're they're, they're setting aside their priorities their priorities to love each other to to carry out the fruit of the gospel in the life of the church, so he says. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. So what about the word saint? I know that for me, coming out of Roman Catholicism, the word saint is, uh, it it carries the idea of, um, oh, well, Christians aren't, well, Catholics aren't saints, the way we think about it. We're, We're not saints unless we are declared saints by the Pope. And sainthood is something that if they examine, once they examine your life and you meet these requirements then you're going to be a saint, and then you're canonized as a saint. So a saint, to me as a Roman Catholic, were the ones on the stained glass windows, or they were the pendants we wore, and and we prayed. If we traveled, we would pray to St. Christopher, watch over us, keep us (laughs) safe on our travels. Uh, These were the saints, but who's Paul calling the saints here? Each and every individual at the Church of Philippi. These are the saints of God, and quite literally, saint means the holy ones, we are the holy ones because God, he says, he says, saints in Christ Jesus. So we're not just holy ones, uh, not connected to anything, just set by ourselves. We are holy ones in Christ. And that's what the gospel has done for us. In Christ Jesus, we are set apart to the Father as his special people. Through the Father, in His sovereign election of His people, He has pulled us out of this world, set us aside from this world, and made us holy. So we are the holy ones in terms of our being set aside by God's sovereign decree and election. We are distinguished from the rest of the world. And then we are holy ones in our identity positionally. In Christ, positionally, We are holy. Christ's holiness, Christ's righteousness, the perfections of Him are ours because we are in Him. Just like when we were in Adam and everything that was Adam, his fallenness, his sin was ours. And so we're born condemned because we are in Adam. But now because we are in Christ, everything, the principles, the the guiding, the force of Christ is now working in us so that not only positionally are we holy in Christ, but because of our union in Christ, that holiness that we have in him is now working in us to actually make us holy so that we are working out our salvation in fear and trembling, which Paul has encouraged us to do in this letter. We work out this fear and trembling, not in our strength, not in our willpower, but because we are in union with Christ. Union in Christ is not an ethereal thought, good uh, uh, intention. It is an active power. And just as we were in Adam, in that active power of Adam's sin was driving, in us, driving us to sin, driving us to suppress the truth and unrighteousness, driving us to hate God, The same power that works in Christ works in us to love God, to obey God, to go after God, to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. That's the power of union in Christ. And so Paul, he greets them. I see you. I love you. Every single one of you, holy ones of God. You you made holy by the blood of Christ. The power of Christ working in your lives to be holy I see you and I recognize you. And then he goes on. He says, The brothers greet you. So he starts off with, I greet you. But the, but the greet there is plural. So it's probably him and Timothy again. Just as at the beginning of the letter, it's, it's uh, him and Timothy that are addressing uh, them in this letter. So, so the first part is probably Paul and Timothy. And then he says, Every brother greets you, or all the brothers greet you. And so who are all the brothers? Well, remember when he's in prison and he's talking about that he's not going to be ashamed because uh, the gospel is going out he's, and he's confident in the power of the gospel. Some see my chains and, and they, they use it as a way to elevate themselves. They'll preach the gospel, but at the expense of me, but others see my chains and they become bold. They see the gospel working. It's those brothers that are preaching in boldness. They're coming to Paul and saying, Hey, Paul, we know you're writing the Philippians. Will you please tell them? We said hi. We recognize them too. We, we, we love the Philippians too. Will you come and say hi? There's a fellowship here. In this par- partnership of the proclama- proclamation of the gospel, uh, it's not a business partnership. It's not an organizational, corporate, we're going to have this structure. This is a family. This is a family coming together, loving on each other for the purpose of the gospel. And so, you had Epaphroditus uh, there. Uh, other preachers who were uh, there could have been Aristarchus, Tychicus, uh, maybe even Onesimus may have been there. Um, a lot of people have come through, even some uh, of the guys think that Mark and Luke could have even been there. But the brothers, knowing Paul's writing to the Ephes- or to the Philippian church, jump in and say, hey, Paul, please let them know we're thinking of them too. Let them know we love them. And so the, the brothers greet them. And then verse 22, he says, and all the saints greet you. And I think that Paul is not just throwing it in there to, oh yeah, they'll probably just want to greet him too. I think that in his prison and people are visiting and they're coming and going and the brothers are coming and going and, and saints of the church of Rome are coming and going and, and they know what's going on and they know he's writing letters and I think that they too and they know the story of the Philippians. They know their poverty. They know that they, uh, Epaphroditus has just traveled 600 miles to deliver the gift from the Philippians and they're a poor church. They're and they're still in their love for Paul. their concern for Paul. And their love for the gospel. They're giving out of their poverty. And I think that the other church. Uh, the members of the church of Rome. See that. And they, they love that. They love their brothers and sisters. Serving and striving side by side. In this partnership of the gospel. And I think that as they're coming and going. And visiting Paul. They're throwing in there. Hey tell them. Tell them the, sorts of, the, tr- the saints at Rome. Uh, say hi. We, we we just want to be thrown in there. We love them. We recognize them. So I see here in this first two verses, this, just this this fellowship of the saints. It's Paul. It's the brothers. It's the church at Rome. It's the Philippians, and they're all wanting to say hi. I love you. I see you. I recognize you. They, there's this this tender care. They, they don't want to be separated. They're not on, an, they're on a mission to, to elevate themselves or, or run and do their rugged individual Christianity. Remember, it's partnership. They're together in this. And they love each other. But we don't always turn out that way in churches, do we? We get people going rogue and people doing their own thing. And, um, so as I studied Philippians, I'm, I'm looking at it. I'm like, how, how did they get here? How did they get here where, where Paul's writing a letter... And at the very end, they all jump in and they want to make sure that the recipients of this letter know that they recognize them in love and care. How do we, how do we get there? And I think it starts with leadership. I think it's, it's the tone that the leadership sets in the body. And as I study Paul, and, and specifically these last two years, as I look at Paul, I, I'm so amazed and blown away by this truly, uh, I was listening to somebody the other day talking about uh, the greatest Christian that ever lived. I, my opinion, I think Paul was the greatest Christian that ever lived. He, his heart, his aim, his joy, everything was Christ Jesus. He tells us here, in Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He was not vying to be the greatest theologian in history. He was not vying to leave behind a a great body of scholarly work. He wasn't vying to be known. He was, his heart was all about Christ, pursuing Christ. And even says here in Philippians, he talks about, uh, he talks about uh, arriving and he goes, I haven't arrived. I haven't arrived. I, I, I stretch out of myself. Let's, I just want to look at that passage real quick. He says, he goes through in, in three and he talks about his, all his credentials, all these things that we glory in, our, our standing, our, what group we belong to, our education, all of this. And he says, I count it as a loss. In fact, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. This was a leader whose his sole glory in his life, his aim, his, his driving force was Christ. And knowing Christ and gaining Christ. And he says, and I want to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on. On faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This wasn't a guy who, in his in his cold orthodox theology, sat back and just assumed. He did. He never took it for granted. He says, by any means possible. Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect. I'm not. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That's what union in Christ does. Union in Christ does not bring you to a place where you just oh, it's, it's done. I'm going to sit back. No, Union in Christ, that power is running through us. And it's causing Paul, the greatest Christian that's ever walked this earth, to say, I haven't already obtained this. I'm not already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. This is not quietism. This is not, I believe in Jesus Christ, I said the prayer, I'm elected, done. That's not union in Christ. Look, look at the action. Look at the verbs in here. Forgetting what lies behind and straining ahead, stretching to the max. I am going after Christ he says the same thing in 1 Corinthians. He's talking about the Corinthian churches. Uh, oh, they're big on their liberty, right? Food is, for the bo- or food is for the stomach and stomach is for food. So let's eat and dig in. No. No, that, that's, that's what the Israelites did when they came out of Egypt, right? They were baptized. They drank from the spiritual rock. They were in Christ. But they played fast and loose, didn't they? They they played with fornication, they played with idolatry, they, they, they did not buffet their bodies and follow this God in faith, and they all and what was what what happened to them? The bodies were scattered in the desert. When God saves us, he transforms us so radically that we truly are a new creation. We truly are distinct from those who have not been elected, from those who have not been born again. This is the gospel, brothers and sisters. And this is Paul. This is beautiful, powerful, loving Paul. And I just want to look at Paul just for just a brief moment. and You know, Paul, he was the theologian of theologians, right? You read Romans and you read his arguments and you, you read his, just his logic and his re- reasoning. And as he's, as he's presenting his case in Romans, he's already uh, getting ready for what the, the opposition is going to say. And he addresses them in the arguments. And he goes over and over. And even Second Peter 3.16 says, There are some things in his letters that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scripture. Even, so even Peter he says, what well, Paul writes is hard. There's some hard things in there. And then if you remember in Acts 26, 24, uh, when he was before Festus, and he's, 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 given the, he's given the gospel to Festus, and Festus can't take it anymore. He says, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. Paul was this rugged theologian, uh, just, you could not bring a case against him. His argumentation was so airtight. Right? But in 1 Corinthians 14, 20, he says, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. He expected us to be just as rigorous. He expected us to be thinkers. He expected us to to push the bounds, meditate, and know just what he knows. He he wasn't arrogant or he wasn't at the, the stratosphere of intellectualism. He expected you to know it. And we can know it because we're filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is our teacher. If you apply yourself to the Word, you can know what, what Paul knew. He even says so in 2 Timothy 2.7. 2, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. It's not for just the high academics. It's not for all the schooled. It's not for the super intelligent. You have the Spirit of God, brothers and sisters. You can know this. It takes more than intelligence to know this. There are brilliant men who study this and they miss it because the Spirit's not there teaching them the heart of the truth of it. I think Paul in his theology and his mindset of himself, in which I see a lot of in the he never developed, which I see so prevalent in the church today, this soft bigotry of low expectations. Like, I oh, will just teach this to them. They... That's good enough. That's probably all they're going to be able to understand. We were at the Shepherds Conference. They were asking Paul Washer. You know, they're talking about the missionaries over there. And they're, they're showing the Jesus film. And they're just preaching a dumbed down gospel. And they asked them, well, why are they doing that? They're racist. <laughs> they think that because they're not, they're not educated like we are. They think because they're not a civilized or advanced society like we are. They're just, they're not going to be able to understand it. Oh, really? A man or woman created in the image of God can't understand it. That's bigotry. It's soft bigotry, but it's there. But Paul did not think like that. This man of God, so airtight, such a thinker, brilliant, said, think over what I say, the Lord will give you understanding. He didn't look down on us. He expected us to know it too. And so in his rigorous theological mind, um, he comes, he brings that, and he's, he's ministering to the church. And he's firm and he's bold. I think one of the things that we find in the church, and not only in the church, but in society at large, we either got, we got two kinds of men. We got those who are firm, bold, but then tend to be harsh. And Tend to be a little hard to to connect with, and they're always kind of you know scowling and judging, and uh, and in their the, in their study and all this. They're they're good solid guys, but but for some reason the soft side isn't there, the the connected side isn't there. But then you got the other side that is very soft, and they don't uh, they're kind and you can connect with them, but they don't ever want to address the hard issues. They don't, at all costs, they avoid the conflict. And so their niceness and their connectivity ends up becoming shallow sentimentalism and they end up being no help at all. Aspiring men's group last night, Steve was talking about to the young men. He's like, young men, we need to be gentle, but we also got to be firm. <laughs> he, hit, he hit the nail on the head. The, the perfect man is gentle and firm. He's bold and he's, he's aggressive when needs to be. When things are serious, he's protecting. But to those who need gentle care, he's there giving that gentle care. And you see this with Paul. When it came to the gospel, uh, you remember in Galatians, the Judaizers that come in and they're um, distorting the gospel. They're adding works to it. And Paul, Paul comes in in Galatians 1, 6-9 and says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be damned. Wow. That's a firm, bold protector of the gospel. And he says it again. He, he says it once and then he goes on. He says it again, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be damned. This was how zealous he was for the truth of the Word of God and especially the gospel because it's the gospel that is the power to break through our deadness and awaken us and save us. And Paul was not going to negotiate with that. He was not going to be a nice guy when it came to that. And he goes on. So he, so he addresses him there, but he doesn't stop there. <laughs> Galatians 2.11, but when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. What a bold man. Could you imagine condemning Peter? To his face, the leader of the 12, the spokesman, big, powerful Peter, preached the first sermon in the book of Acts, and 3,000 are saved. And this Johnny-come-lately apostle, who he never lived with, uh, with Jesus, right? That was the Corinthians' complaint. Like, uh, is he really even an apostle? I mean, like, we just saw Peter, and he's a real apostle. But Paul, come on. And Paul comes and confronts him to his face. That's boldness. And then he goes on, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. That is bold, firm shepherding. This is a man who's not playing around with salvation. He's not playing around with their spiritual growth. He's addressing it and he's, he's hitting it square in the eyes. But see, this is what's beautiful about Paul, though. In all his rigorous theology and his firmness and boldness, he can be the exact opposite, right? First Thessalonians 2, 7 through 8, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. See, a lot of times, like I was saying, the hard, harsh guy, he can't say things like this. He doesn't got a category for this. But Paul can go from being firm and bold into instantly this gentle, nurturing, loving shepherd. And then even in Romans 9 as he as he works through the, the intricacies of the gospel... And he comes to Romans chapter 9, verses 1 and 3. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed. I could wish that I myself were damned and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. His heart yearned for the lost. So much so, he said, I'll, I'll, I'll be damned. I'll be cursed if my brothers, my kids, if Israel can be saved. He was a lover of the people. But he tells us, he shows that us that in Philippians also, doesn't he? Starting in verse 7 of chapter 1. I'll just start with six. And I'm sure of this, that he began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This was a man who was not only a theologian, but he was a lover of, Of his people. He loved the flock that God had put under his care. He yearned for them. We had a spirit of fellowship here at the end of Philippians because the man who was leading this, the man who was shepherding, the man who is, he's he's building this tone of fellowship. He's he's building a culture of love and humility in these people. And then verse 4 1 again he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. He longs for his people, he yearns for his people, he loves his people. He's a rigorous theologian, bold defender of the faith, a lover of the people. Absolutely beautiful Christian leader, elder, apostle. And so as I was contemplating this leadership and I'm looking back at Philippians and how he's, he's working through Philippians, the one theme that keeps popping out in me in all this theology is he keeps weaving in the theme of joy to his people and so he says, well, we got, I, I want to just work through these little little places here real quick. So I'm just going to quickly, I just want to show you it. So in one three, he's talking about his joy. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always making prayer of mine for you all, make, making my prayer with joy. So he starts off, he says, when I think of you and I pray for you, you fill me with joy. You make me really glad. And then he moves on to verse 18 and he says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. So you remember he had those brothers preaching the gospel in pretense, hoping to inflict Paul. And he's like, I don't care. It's, who's Paul? At least the gospel's going out and in that I will rejoice. He's rejoicing in the gospel going out. And then in verse twenty-five, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So remember, Paul's talking about he doesn't know if he's going to die or live, but here he's saying, you know, I think I'm going to carry on and live because it is what's going to be most advantageous for your joy of faith. Paul's saying, I'm going to live and carry on because what's at stake is your joy. Is that stunning? What's at stake is your emotional stability, your feelings in this partnership of the gospel. You need to be people of joy. You need to be people of gladness, not downcast, not grumbling, not complaining, not despairing, not sorrowing. He's working for our joy. And so he goes on, two, one, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, any sympathy, which the answer to all those, there is. There is all that. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. What's he saying when he says that? When he says complete my joy, he's writing and telling me, he's like, you know what? When I hear of you, or I come and see you, and I see the unity and the humility that you operate inside your church, you are going to make me so happy. This is what Paul is saying to them. He's talking about his gladness, his joy, their joy. In the midst of this partnership, in the proclamation of the gospel, it's in joy. We are to be joyful people, so he goes on to, to verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So there's no joy there, but what is there? There's grumbling. There's disputing. These are Why do we grumble? Right? We're feeling like we're ripped off, we're, we're irritated, we're agitated, we don't like the situation, so we begin to complain. And just before that, he's he's charged them with working out their salvation in fear and trembling. And he wants us, the reason that he wants us to work out our fear and trembling is so that in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation, the, the black darkness of that, that you enjoy shine as lights in the world. That's how you're going to glorify the Father, that enjoy your shining in lights. Because he goes on, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me also. You see how he keeps driving this emotion, this feeling throughout the midst of our, of our uh, mission of the gospel? He says, even if I'm being poured out, even if I die doing this, I'm glad. I have joy. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. The gospel is going out. This is what we are. We are people of Joy. And then he just... He carries on. Chapter 3, he charges them. Rejoice in the Lord. So here's the command. He says, rejoice in the Lord. And he he goes on to 4.1. Therefore, my brothers whom I love. he's Now he's talking about his joy again. They are his joy. And then he goes 10 through 14. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Now at length you have received, revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking and be in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. So it was the kindness of the Philippians and their gift to Paul that caused him to rejoice. In this partnership, we are receiving joy. So, so all through here, we got this joy theme running through our partnership in the proclamation of the gospel. And as I contemplated that, and I thought about Paul's theology and his aim in his life, and it makes perfect sense. I just want to remind you that Jesus, in the, in the, when he's talking about the prodigal son in Luke 15, he, who's the father representing in the prodigal son? It's God. It's God the father. And, in, and the prodigal son is this, this stray sheep. He's stray, and the sheep comes home, And God the Father receives them. He's saved. And what's God the Father do? He throws a party. He slaughters the fattened lamb. God the Father is a happy God. Our God is not a stoic, downer God. Our God is a happy God. So His children are going to be happy. In um, Matthew 25... Jesus portrayed himself in the day of judgment, welcoming his servants home with the words, enter into the joy of your master. The master is a happy master. 1 Timothy 11, Paul writes, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. What's blessed mean? It doesn't mean in this sense right here, it doesn't mean blessed in the sense as praised. It's blessed in happy, content. Paul is saying the gospel of the glory of the happy God, the content God. 1 Timothy 13, he who is the blessed and only sovereign. He who is the happy and only sovereign. Do you have a th- theology of a happy God? Do you know God is a God who is a God of joy? Or is he a mean God? Is he a is he a God who is just always ready and looking to, to make your life ruin? He's not. He is a happy God. And, in, and this is his will and intent for his people. This is and these are Paul's words here. God is God that is a happy God. Remember Luke 2:10? Good news of great joy. This gospel is good news of great joy. This that brings your emotional states into joy. And then Jesus Himself in John 15, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy will be in you, and that your joy may be full. Jesus is saying that the the emotional gladness, happiness that I have, I want it to be in you. I want you to live this Christian life with my emotional state of happiness. I want you to have these feelings of gladness, my feelings of gladness. This is Jesus' desire. And, then, and I think this is what Paul's desire is. In the ultimate end, I think this is what Paul is driving at in all of his theology, all of his ministry. He is, his aim is, is the joy of his people. And, I, and it's in Philippians 1.25-26, if I remain on the earth, the reason will be for your joy. It's for your joy. 2 Corinthians 1.24, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. Because what is the joy of the Lord? Remember joy? It's that feeling, that feeling of gladness, contentness, Deep, resounding happiness, it's the fruit of the Spirit. Our joy is being wrought in us through the power of the Spirit. As the Spirit reveals the truth of God to us, it produces in us an emotional state of well being. And this is Paul's aim here. And I think that's what I'm seeing here in this last section, in this last final greeting. Paul has given him one more little truth bomb. That's going to explode their joy. So we go back to our text. He says, I and Timothy greet you. The brothers greet you. Every saint in Rome greets you. And then I can just see Paul's face. A big old smile from ear to ear. Especially those of Caesar's household. (laughs) Could you imagine the Philippians as they read this? Caesar's household is getting saved. That means Nero's household is getting saved. Nero was the Caesar at this time. Nero was the arch enemy. Paul says, I will not be ashamed of my chains for it is for the gospel. And it is clearly evident because the gospel is reaching its way all the way into Caesar's household. And this is meaning possibly family, but all, the, all those who worked and, and ministered in Caesar's household. Philippians, this is news of great joy. The gospel cannot be stopped. And Philippians, you're out of your poverty, out of, your, out of this money that you're giving. This is, this is the fruit of it. Caesar's household is being saved, Philippians. And you are part of that. And I think that's what he even tells them. <clears throat> in, the, in verse four or chapter 4, he's telling them, you know, like Chris was saying last week, he, he can't say directly thank you, but he is in this section. He says, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. What's he saying to him? God is going to so bless you. He is going to so reward you, Philippians, that I want some of that. He, he, is in the, he is in the final three verses here, dropping a joy truth bomb on them to cause them to exhilarate in their partnership of this proclamation of the gospel. So we see the leadership side of it. We lead in a way that's self, self-sacrificial, self-sacrificial that we are leading in a way that the people are gaining their joy from the truths of God in the Word of God. But what is your part? I think we go back to Philippians 2.15, count others more significant than yourselves. Be humble, humility in all things. Do Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation in fear of trembling. Be vigilant in that. And we do Philippians 4.10, he says, you revived your concern for me. Revive your concern for your elders. We're getting a brand new elder. He's a young guy. He's going to need a lot of support. He's going to need your love. He's going to need your support. Revive your concern for him, for us, as we labor in serving here. And so, last verse, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. If you Look at the beginning of this. He says grace. Let me just pull it here. He says. Grace to you and peace from God our father. And this is typical of every letter of Paul. It's always grace to you. And it's also always typical. Grace now be with you. And John Piper. I thought this was great. He thinks that the grace be with you now part. Is the letter. It's the word of God. God. It's what he just wrote to him. Take this in. Know it. Swim in it. Understand it. And do it. So this ends our journey through Philippians. I remember, I think it was September, I was sitting out in the blueberry patch. I was in charge of filling the pulpit for the next three, four months. And nothing was going the way I wanted it. I was getting really discouraged and I, because I had tried to contact Faith Bible, Spokane, I I never got any response, and I thought, it's, they're not interested, and, and Jasmine ended up going to Spokane the week before, because Bailey wanted to go up there and visit, and, and she had said something to some older guy, you don't even know who he was, and and he was just like, oh, it's, it's probably just too far away, and so I was just discouraged, and I'm sitting there, phone rings, he's like, is, is, Anton there? (laughs) like, Anton, no? Andre? Oh yeah, Andre. Yeah, this is Dan Jarms from Faith Bible Spokane. I just got your message. We haven't been able to get to the phones in about three weeks because of COVID. And I'm like, oh yeah. And so I I was discouraged talking to him. I thought, I oh, you know, it's so far. I know he, this probably can't work. And he's like, you know, I got this great guy, he's my assessant. I bet he'd be he'd be happy to do it. His name's Chris Chris Mullins, and he's like, Well, what do you think? And I said, well, we need to fill the pulpit for three months. I said, I can preach. You know, if you guys got a couple of guys and like to work through Philippians and have a continuity of thought as we, as we go through these times, as we search for a pastor. And he said, yeah, I'll get Chris right on that. And, <laughs> and that's what Chris did. He put this schedule together and, and uh, working through Philippians. And I just, uh, the only reason I highlight that is that the Lord is here and the Lord is faithful He's guiding, he's providing, he's loving on you guys and we should recognize that. And so just let me end this with a prayer. Father, thank you for all of your love and care for us. Lord, thank you for providing Chris, Lord. Thank you for providing all the, the preaching the past three, four, five months, Lord. Uh, Lord, there was never a time when there was ever in danger of not somebody being here to preach and, and that's by your hand, Lord. Uh, We thank you for that. We thank you for that care. I pray, Lord, now as we go forward, uh, that you would just continue to bless us, Lord. Grow us spiritually, Father. Grow us in an understanding of you, Lord, so that we may not only uh, be that light that shines in this world, but that our joy would be full in you, Lord. Let us be joyful Christians representing you uh, well, Lord. And Lord, I just I thank you for this day. May our hearts be set upon you today and through the week for your glory, Lord. Amen.